Listening studs, and my guest this week is uh, well. I've got two guests this week as well, joined by occasional co-host uh, Brandon. Um, I have David Brothers, who I don't even know your job title at Image Comics. Uh, it's probably going to change in like two weeks. So I used to be content manager at Image Comics, and now I'm something else. By the time this hits the internet, um, is your job going to change? Or no, is I'm it... still at Image, but. Like but the I, title and the responsibilities will change. Okay. Dude, are you fire in chief now? Can I pitch you right, like, right now? <laughs> that would be amazing, right? <laughs> wow, Image is doing a lot of manga all of a sudden. Uh, and it's the, all from the 80s. It's really weird. <laughs> oh, that's, yeah. too, that's too enticing. I, th- I thought Brandon already had a line of comics there. <laughs> uh, and our other guest is uh, Christopher Butcher from uh, TCAF and The Beguiling. I, uh, what's your job title at TCAF now? I'm the festival director and co-founder, uh, as well as the manager of The Beguiling. There we go. The finest comic store that I have ever been to. Oh, that's very kind of you. Thank you. Well, it's, uh, How any... long have you been at The Beguiling? 
2002, I guess. Oh, cool. 2002 so, years. 2002 <laughs> years. Uh, and yeah, I'm still only the manager. I'm not, I haven't bought in yet. Um, <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> now, David, you might need to be a little bit louder. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Sorry about that. I can that. do. Okay. Um, now, I brought the... We were talking on Twitter. Um, it'd be fun to talk. And uh, I forget who said, I want to come on. And then one of you said, yeah, I want to come on too. Uh, and so here we are. Uh, I threw an email around and said, I like talking to both of you very much, um, as well as I like talking to Brandon. And I know Brandon likes talking to the both of you very much. Um, and so one of the topic ideas uh, that came about was uh, kind of talking about the concept that conventions play in comics right now. Uh, Christopher running uh, the lar- one of the largest alt comics uh, festivals in North America. Um, David having a key role um, with Image Comics, especially uh, as a public face, doing all the programming and the paneling, as well as standing behind the image table at conventions, um, selling books, and Brandon, of course, being an artist that goes and sits behind the table selling comics. And Chris in the past has also uh, ran tables for Udon Publishing. Um, so, does that make sense? Did everything I say there, was that right? Yeah, I don't even know if that was English. Uh, <laughs> it sounded sober, so we're, we're in good shape. Yeah, it's alright, man. Um, now, I don't really have a really good question to start this with, as much as more kind of uh, thoughts on it. Um, maybe it's kind of a more overarching question of what do you see conventions currently as as a role within comics culture slash industry as a whole um, and are we in a good spot with that can I ask David to go first I really am curious what uh, what image why image does conventions um, like I get that everyone does San Diego because everyone has to do San Diego uh, and I get that creators have to do conventions because they're you know like the burden is largely on them to promote their own books these days with no offense intended but I'm curious, why does Image do cons? That's a good question. Um, and weirdly, one that I barely put any thought to. Uh, but it seems like for us, it's a way to center, like we have so many different creators of uh, like different levels of fame and things like, things like that. And it sort of puts them on the same playing ground when they're all in the booth with us. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and it also, like for me personally, like what kind of turned me around on conventions is that it's like the purest expression of enthusiasm in comics. Like for the hardcore fans, like I never come away from a con like, wow, comics is in really bad shape, yeah. So it's sort of like confirming the fan base and also like propping up our our creators. So for you, it you actually come away from cons generally feeling pretty good. Yeah, definitely, definitely energized. Even if I'm kind of having like a down year on like comics culture or whatever, like seeing the families of people is really makes things go hmm. like kids awesome. in costume. Yeah. It's, it's, it's such a softy like position for me to hold, <laughs> uh, but like you, you see a kid in a flash costume and he, like he has a pose he's practice and all this sort of thing. And it's like, wow, like this stuff really does, uh, like it counts. Like this, it, it's a good thing. Hmm. Brandon, how about you? Why do you, why do you do shows? Um, 
<clears throat> a big part of it for me is um, is like uh, basically yeah connecting with people who are essentially paying your rent. Um, yeah, I have a lot of there's a lot of specific things I do at shows like I, I don't charge for sketches, mm. um, just which <clears throat> I always joke about how it's fantastic because it makes you look good, it makes everyone around you look bad. Um, <laughs> but uh, but the main thing is like. Because like when I'm there, I just like I really want to interact with these people. Because I I I, have only, I I think that you cre- you really create an audience of the type of work you have a lot of control as a creator. What type of audience you have, and uh, and I like there I've, I there's people whose work I like whose fans I don't like, and mm-hmm. I, I I don't know how much of this is any based on reality and how much is my own weird prejudices. But I I feel like with the work that I put out, I'm really proud and happy with the type of people that, that come up to make conventions and it's like a really good way to connect and and the weird way that I am like a huge amount of just like my friends that I interact with I just met because they read my read my work I was thinking about there was the rap line that uh, I don't remember the dude I'm sure David will remember where he says uh, I got a, it's like uh, I got a lot of you got a lot of fans I got a lot of family oh yeah hmm. um I butchered that already, but yeah, it's just, just <laughs> yeah, and and just the idea of not of, I really like the idea. Like, it's it's great to make money of those things and everything, but I like the idea of it being a, a, a cultural thing and a community, and not just about the financial aspect. Yeah, the money making thing is weird because uh, I didn't know I was good at selling books until someone like pointed it out to me, which sounds well, like a humble brag, yes. but it's like it's totally true. Like I was completely unaware. Because all I do is talk to people about what they like, you know? Yeah. Like, I just have, like, a conversation, and I'm like, oh, you should read blah, 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 because you'll probably like it. I always wonder if it's hard working at a store or at a or at a company when there's things that you're obviously not going to like. Yeah. Like, is that just when you kind of are quiet? Oh, yeah. Uh, no, it's... Actually, it's funny. <laughs> I got really, like, I guess part of my critical training, like, a thing that I always try to do is read stuff that I'm not into and try to find things that I like about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I could pick up a before Watchmen book and be like, these J Lee circle panels are freaking awesome. And right. you know, that was like the dumbest thing in the world. Interesting. Do you, can you find any, something in every, everything you dislike that? Yeah, definitely. It's just like figuring out who it's for and like what kind of pitch the creator is going for basically. Yeah. I mean, Brandon, you, you like a lot of comics, uh, that other people find irredeemable, right? Yeah, Dark Knight Strikes Again is so high on my list. Me too. And it's almost like a point of pride. Like, I'm half trolling, but I'm also serious about it, you know? But it's it's not a good comic, but it's really entertaining in interesting ways. The the the, the tiny guy in the Petri dish scene is pretty good. Oh, uh, yeah, where he's fighting, like, the uh, like crustacean creature, and it turns out to be tiny. Yeah. There's yeah, there's something... so much stuff in that that's, that's like bafflingly good considering uh frank miller's recent work so that's what it's all about i think being and it's being a retailer and, and then hand selling at cons as well it's just like you know um i don't love all the wood on stuff i don't love all the stuff that we get into the store but being able to talk about a work that you don't personally enjoy like it, it's out there and it's probably on its like seventh issue or its tenth issue or its fourth trade or whatever like someone's reading this and buying it someone's liking it and finding Finding the thing that people like about that thing helps you sell that thing. And it's just part yeah. of being a salesperson, for sure. 
Hmm. And it's also, I have like this like insecure streak to where like I'm not into like Sandman really or a few of the, I'm just going to be like, this is going to sound dumb, but like smart people comics, you know what I mean? And like, I want to study that stuff to figure out what I'm missing. And in the course of studying it, you kind of pick up like, oh, like Chris Ware does interesting layouts, even though all of his characters are really annoying. Right. And so you oh. just say the first half and not the second half, and it tends to work out okay. So, so the reason I, I brought the I, I wanted to ask about that is because I've had um, all of my experiences with cons have been really uh, sales oriented. Like TCAF, mm-hmm. we set it up as a way for creators to make money as much as we could, uh, keeping prices low and stuff. You know, it is expensive to get to Toronto from big swaths of North America, let alone overseas, but if you're within, like, you know, if you're Chicago or, you know, Ohio or New York City or Montreal or whatever, it's like, you know, under 10 hours to drive there. Like, I used to do shows like that all the time where I'd set up and, and just pile a bunch of people into a van. Like, you can actually do it for pretty cheap. So, like, we we set it up and we're like, hey, don't set up a TCAF if you don't have shit to sell and, uh, and if you're not, like, really into selling the things that you're doing. And I think that that... That is one of the reasons, like we 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 make more money for most people who exhibit there than other shows do, is because we try and cultivate an atmosphere of actually selling. And then working for Udon, like we didn't get to do a show unless the show broke even, mm. uh, and that's wow. you know like there are and I hustle, man. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I it's it's really interesting too because a lot of publishers, a lot of artists look at going to a show as a, as a marketing expense. It's like, yeah, I'm going to build this, I'm going to do this comic, you know, 12 issues in a year, but I'm going to connect with those people that can come see me at this show and that's going to make sure that they keep buying it and they tell their friends and they spread the word. And I think that, you know, investing in that in that kind of idea is, is super good. I, I, I really like that. Uh, but, you know, the economic realities for a lot of publishers in the industry are, no, you just got to sell. You just got to yeah. sell. If I could do a show that was just... Uh, like very TCAF in style where it's just like you show up and we'll like teach you some cool stuff about comics. We'll talk about comics for, you know, a weekend. I totally would. Uh, but we've, the, uh, been, we've been trying, man. And it's, it, it, it's exactly that. It's like Friday we, we offer all this free creator programming now. You create comics, just come and we'll like show you workshops and stuff like that. And the number of people we talk to that are like, dude, I get, I get in on Friday night because I've got to like pull my shift at work on Friday and then like fly up as soon as I can so I can get there for Saturday morning and then I'm out first thing Sunday to get back to work for Monday and that's where their comics career is at. Mm-hmm. I respect that. It's disappointing because yeah. I want to give back to the industry. Was the attendance pretty low for that part then? No, the first year it was uh, because, I mean, it was all everything comes together later than I wanted to with the show. Mm-hmm. This year though we sold out of, of I think – or sold, like gave away the tickets were free. We had to register, and I think six out of eight of our programs were completely full or, or sold oh, out wow. of registration. And yeah, no, it was really good. We're gonna expand it again next year. Um, but because we have like Jesus, we had over five hundred exhibitors, like five hundred individual artists at the show this year. So it was you know filling up a hundred and twenty seat room or whatever is not impossible <laughs> but the number of people i talk to are like is there any way you could do like saturday night programming as i'm already in toronto or whatever and we're just man i'd love it i wish i wish there was something that we could do uh, and we're always we're always open ideas on that front but yeah yeah we uh we had like an epiphany at image um every time i would do a panel and we would talk about a book on stage that was at the booth as opposed to be as opposed to coming out three months later or whatever 
uh, there'd be a rush of people to the booth. Like having that conversation leads often directly to sales, and I think a lot of people miss that. Mm-hmm. Oh, right. I always I always started off the udon panels I did by like just recapping the highlights of the previous like six to twelve months of books, and it, for exactly that reason, because people are like, yeah. "Oh shit, you guys did whatever." I'm gonna go check that out. Like, and udon was was. I mean, obviously, you guys are doing way, way more more output, but like Udon's doing, I would say thirty twenty four to thirty six books a year, but mm-hmm. I would say twenty to thirty properties. So every book has got to basically be marketed from the ground up, like it's a new thing. Like you can tap into the persona fan base or whatever, but it's just like reinventing the wheel every book that comes out. So yeah, I mean, unless you're a super diehard fan, you just miss stuff and you're like, oh shit, you guys did a Katamari book? I'll go check that out. <laughs> I'm sorry, as a loop with Udon. I just think of them as doing Street Fighter comics. Yeah, well, that's a huge problem that I I, mean, I did my best. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, actually the the art books and things, Brandon. I think you would like especially because um, I've seen the Street Fighter ones. Yeah, but like <laughs> even <laughs> like the Persona ones are favorites. Uh, I think Udon did the Reader Die art book. Yeah, we did Reader Die. Reader Die. Yeah, that was a really handsome one, and it's awesome to see, like, as a fan of animation, to see all that stuff in one space, but also kind of figuring out the artist uh, who did the work, kind of what they were thinking when they were designing characters. Yeah, I actually fell in love with that when I was doing when I was doing art books, is I would read them all from cover to cover, and it's just like they, you know, the good ones anyway would have these these publishers, like these artists, just like dig into all of their illustrations. It'd be like a page, like a half page of notes to go with this one illustration. Yeah. And it was great. And then the next page would be like, uh, I just thought Christmas would be a kind of a cool thing. And then you get like <laughs> one sentence. And it's such a great look at the creative process. I'm wondering um, the role, we're talking about having a make or break of these shows, and I'm wondering about the role that it is for publishers and for artists, um, even not necessarily like of all strats from small mini comic folks to you know, guys of Brandon's level, um, the role that it plays in every in, tower, uh, <laughs> in in being a, a market for folks to check out because of um, you know dwindling amounts of comic stores, um, and really a lot more people would be more likely to go to a comic convention than step foot in a comic store at this point. Like I talked to my coworkers who would actually consider going to a, a comic con, quote unquote, but will have absolutely no interest in ever walking into Golden Age on Gravel Street. Um, I feel like cons are still... Like, there's a lot of casual traffic, for lack of a better uh, descriptor, but they, like they feel pretty hardcore to me. Like, it, you're not a casual fan to check out the sites if you're at a comic convention. Like, you're, you're either, like, a, a deep fan or one who is friends with a deep fan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wonder, I, if, is the audience yeah. for, for TCAF when there's no to come in and it's just kind of right in the middle of, of downtown uh, we the, the thing we discovered actually is that people spend a lot less time uh, at TCAF but they spend just as much money uh, I th- we've we figured it out that the average length of time we just were doing interviews and asking we asked people and then we did interviews and we sort of t- uh, talked to them and it was just like yeah they spend about two hours at TCAF wow. and if you think about a a, but they spend upwards of a hundred dollars each. Uh, they just go through the show looking at stuff, and they might go back to one or two things, and then they're done. It's like, <clears throat> excuse me, just like going to like a craft fair or something like that. And that it's something that's happening, but it doesn't necessarily have to be your whole day. Mm. Comics can be just like this one part of your life, and then you're gonna go, you know, go out for dinner or something like that. Right, but, but if you show, spend like, fifty bucks to get in, then you're gonna want to like 
make sure that you get that 50 bucks worth of yeah. walking every inch of the convention floor. Well, and chances are you also spend an hour that time just lining up to get in. <coughs> it's the worst. It's uh, everything. <coughs> Sorry, I'm coughing up a storm here. Uh, um, exactly that. Uh, we, we really found that we could get rid of all the stuff that we didn't like about the show experience by making it free. And, you know, there's no people, like, people are like, how do you get that many people? Like, it doesn't look that big. It's like, people just aren't at the library the same way that people are just hanging out at a con convention. Like, there's no one that has that, at the end of the day at TCAP, except for the exhibitors, no one has that thousand-yard stare. Like, they're just like, I've been wandering around for six hours in, like, fluorescent lid concrete, and I'm fucking done. No right. one does that. It's so nice. It's so, it's like, yeah, it's just like, so everyone ideal. feels good, and it's like, let's go get hammered with all the money we made. Uh, <laughs> and that's exactly TCAP. <laughs> David, I'm interested in, in how, in, how uh, involved with the image expos you are. Uh, a lot, starting with this one. Well, I guess technically in January, I did like five hours on stage in a row, which was brutal. That's um, a really fun show to go to as a, as, you know, as a person that makes books. Oh, yeah, because it's all like hero worship, right? It's pretty great. <laughs> it's, just, it's, all, it's all panels and uh, it's all just like talking about the stuff and not like... Oh, yeah. Not at all selling the stuff, which is, you know, fine. It's just... Um, it's a different vibe. Yeah, I know what you mean. The, the hero, the the weird behind the table, in front of the table thing is always weird for conventions, but that's um, inevitable, I guess. Yeah. Do you have a um, discomfort with that kind of being there presented, um, that answerableness to tabling, Brandon? Uh, no. I try to break a lot of the stuff. I do sometimes I'll be at shows and I, like, won't sit behind the table. I'll just, like, stand in front of it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I have a weird thing, because I've been on the other side of the table a lot, and I have a weird thing about, like, um, you know, I, I don't, I want to have, like, conversations with people on the level. I don't, ideally, I don't want to, like, you know, have some kind of pedestal thing going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense. That's, uh, it's it, it gets weird as a fan, too, or at least it did for me. Maybe it's just I'm a jerk or something. But, like, <laughs> there's, like, a power imbalance, kind of. And yeah, it's good to try to get rid of that as yeah. Quick. Yeah, there's, sorry, uh, I've, I've thought, does anyone, I, I don't yeah. want to... Yeah, like, yeah. No, go ahead. In. Yeah. So yeah, there absolutely is a power imbalance. There's like a hero worship thing, like you're saying, and the way everyone at a Comic Con has been trained to, I don't know, deal with that is financially. It's like, yeah, you're this big dude, but I am going to interact with you through cash, <laughs> and that yeah. is going to make our interaction smooth. You know what I mean? Like that's the that's the it's the literal currency of the conversation. And I think as soon as you move outside of that, especially if you like have made a roadmap like panels or things like Image Expo where there's other ways of interacting with creators that aren't based on <clears throat> some sort of monetary exchange, I think yeah. the conversations start to feel really different and can and usually feel really good. Uh, I've done a lot of library shows and generally it's considered sort of like not cool to sell stuff at a library show. Um, usually you're like giving away arcs or giving away books for free and authors will come and like sign free books and it's getting that book for free and having that author sign and, and having that those few minutes with that author having that, st- that stage sort of uh, talk or, or panel with an author it just creates a different kind of, uh, of bond a different kind of relationship and it's it's huge uh, right. it's why more and more comics 
public publishers are doing things like library shows for exactly that because there's got to be a way. Well, it's sorry. So that's so currency is one um, language you can speak with a creator. You know, speaking to them on questions on panels is another. Look at the look at the the languages of Twitter or the languages of of Tumblr. Like they're really adversarial or like. Uh, there's like a weird broy vibe to 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 Twitter, especially, uh, mm-hmm. and getting outside of that, I think, is super super important. One of the things I like that TCAF does that I wish kind of more small press shows would do is with your kind of headliner uh, artists and creators, they have like separate signing times in a section where they're not selling their their wares; they're just there to sign and meet folks, and I think that oh, works really well. That's actually um, up to the creators themselves. Anyone who's who's a featured guest, or and we've actually started opening it up where uh, any artist can come and just do a signing, and they don't they can sell their own stuff if they want to. They don't have to. We can have their books for them, and different publisher. And it, it really became it came out of things like you know D and Q uh, or uh, takes a real tight you know hand on their creators or rent like most creators that work in the book publishing side of the industry like the you know like random house pantheon kind of stuff mm-hmm. would never dream of hand selling a book like it's just not why they yeah. got into comics they didn't want to be showmen like that so we had to make all different like we had to make the book model available to creators we had to make the comic book model like small press model available to creators we had to make the european model to, available to creators where it's just like all right, we're going to sit you at this table and you're going to draw for people and like you're going to draw for 20 minutes for each person, Matati. Like that's really super cool of you, but uh, we have to find somewhere to put that line where there's like 40 <laughs> people in line for you. And uh, it's, you know, it, it's about making the, the creator as comfortable as possible at the show. Like we want to be generating money, but, you know, there's some people who that just honestly don't need the sales. And as long as they're not taking a table away, like an exhibit, exhibit table away from somebody who does need those sales, then we can we can accommodate them. We can put them in a signing area or off-site and do panels or do an art show or whatever, and it totally works. That's really cool. You can be so responsive. Uh, well, um, it's, it's, it's all learned, man. We've been doing it for uh, 12 years, so yeah. we figured it out. The first couple of years were <laughs> not, not, <laughs> not what they are now. <laughs> Yeah, I'm kind of, uh, I'm in the same figuring out boat myself, just because, like, I've done a lot of shows, but, like, now I'm going to be doing more and more uh, over the course of the year. Sometimes, like, I did special edition New York solo, where I just went oh into God, panels. Really? Yeah, no, we didn't have a booth presence or anything. Uh, I was yeah, presenting. Ghost to that thing, David. I saw you, like, on panels, and then you're gone. Yeah, it, like, I flew in, I arrived Saturday morning and slept for an hour in the hotel and then got right to it. Uh, so that was brutal. But, um, like, even that is a learning experience. Like, now it shows, you know, we're going to be in a day early and leave on Monday morning so we get a night's sleep or something like that. But it's all about finding kind of, like, that line of best fit. Like, how can you best serve uh, your fans, your creators, yourself? Like, how do you not burn yourself out at shows? That's yeah, exactly and it. And like, and like I said, we, it's it's been a learning experience for us. Um, and I think every publisher comes to us with either wanting something specific or having no idea. Like, there's no one between, like, thinking about whatever. It's like, no, we either don't know how you do things, tell us what to do, or here's my list. Like, no green M&Ms. And we just make it work for everybody. How uh, This year, TCAF was, for me, looking from afar, it seemed especially huge. Um, Is it at a sustainable point right now? Um, We get good sponsorship um, from both public sector and private sector. Um, it's, we have an, like a commitment, like the show is, yeah, absolutely sustainable. I don't think I, I have to stop growing the show. Like 
the show next year we're going to make real efforts to like try and keep it contained and, and tight but yeah i mean it's fine <laughs> it's not going anywhere uh it's it's certainly not like the 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 model we chose the the funding model and the well and i don't i don't necessarily mean rich. financially stable i mean or sustainable but just functionally sustainable like do you kind of get what i mean by the difference there because when you're have so many moving parts at a certain size it can be unwieldy yeah every other year um on average we lose somebody because the show gets like the like you know people have their own things going on tcap is i would say mostly volunteer Uh, i think there's only a couple people that are getting paid in any way um and those are people who are basically working full-time um and so people are like yeah i can volunteer up to this point but i think i'm done and you know no harm for no foul on, on anybody uh, but we have a really good solid crew and as long as you know that remains and we sort of grow in a smart way and add people in a smart way and divide up the work um, it's been good uh, especially for me for the last couple of years I've really been able to like stop being stop being as much of a control freak uh, control freak <laughs> on stuff uh, and it's been good uh, I still got more development I think but uh, yeah, uh, if you had asked me a couple of years ago, I'd be like, there's no way I can work as much as I, I do. Um, and part of that was, was why I left Udon. It was just the fact that like we opened up another store. Like I'm at the, at the new store in the reference library right now um, doing this delightful interview. Um, and it was just like, yeah, if it, if it had been the, like the way it was in 2012 or, or 2013 even, like no, I would have just, I'd be dead now. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, people have really stepped up, really done a good job uh, in addition to the efforts that, that I put in and that Peter puts in at the beguiling. Um, and that's how the festival keeps going, is that there's more people that want to be a part of it and see it be successful and, and share in that success. So, you know, the fact that it's not monetary, I think, does freak people out, that <laughs> people want to share in the success of this thing that there is no money in. And it's very it's very comics in a way, which is depressing. But yeah. uh, I, I wish... Well, sorry. Um, you know, there's all kinds of things, but we could. You, 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 I've talked to a lot of people who wrote, run shows, and I've started looking at other shows, and I've seen what the other funding models are. And it's like I don't think it's easy. I think there's a lot of work that goes into it, but I think that we could do that too, and just put on a show that would be, you know, fifty dollars to get in for the weekend, and all, you know, all come away with paychecks. And I don't, I don't know what that adds to the industry. That's actually part of why I wanted to have this talk is like I don't know what those shows like what anyone's getting out of them is it just access is it just like and and it sounds like you know people have warm feelings so I think it's great uh, about going to a yeah. show and being greater and stuff I, I, and think, I really like the Emerald City show which is a, a pay show yeah me too yeah no uh, and you know Jim Jim who runs that's a friend of mine and I have sat down and had like real good conversations about why he does what he does with that show uh, right, and then he even sold it to friend. Reed so <laughs> What was that? He, he uh, they actually just sold Emerald City to Reed. He's going to keep the people who are running it are going to keep running it, but oh. uh, it's now a New York Comic Con show, C two E two show. Yeah, and they've taken oh. and he works for them now on their um, kind of more creator relations. What I understand, and that's yeah. interesting because talking to Jim, he he very much was talking about how his hope for it isn't you know selling off Emerald City as much as it's kind of taking the Emerald City model and expanding it to more shows. Yeah, exactly. And it's just like that 
the Emerald City model makes people happy. They, they're happy to go to Emerald City every year. And I think, um, you know, leaving San Diego out, because San Diego is literally its own beast, if people could feel that good about doing New York Comic Con or, you know, doing C2E2 or doing any of, any of those kind of shows, I think that'd be awesome for the industry. I, I, I really hope he's successful there. But it's like one dude in Emerald City trying to change the entire corporate culture of Reed, and that's it's a weird thing. Yeah, yeah it is. it'll make a good movie in 12 years. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, that's totally, I like the, the point about the culture of shows and kind of spreading because I found that like your mood going into a show dictates how that show's going to go for you in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, like if you're like, uh, I did this thing last year where I kept tweeting like really annoying updates for San Diego Comic-Con, like have you packed and blah, 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 blah. Uh, and it was entirely because I would see all these creators like complaining about how it sucks and this and that. And it's like, it does, but it's also kind of insane. Like it's amazing. And so I try to go into shows like looking forward to the good things that are going to happen, but you know, prepared for the usual annoyances. I haven't gone to San Diego in at least probably like seven years. Oh, it's bedlam, man. It, it is honestly, like, incredibly uncomfortable, but also, like, if you play it right, incredibly fun. Is it like something out of a post-apocalyptic movie at this point? It's like going to Disneyland, but you can't walk anywhere because the aisles are too full. Yeah, it's like a real, actually, there's a real Las Vegas vibe to the gas yeah. lamp now. Like, walking between venues, there's just a lot of people with, like, like, if you could drink on the street, it would be exactly Las Vegas, outside of the convention <laughs> Stormtrooper uniforms. Yeah, just, yeah. like, Stormtrooper uniforms and those, like, yard-long, like, slushy drinks. And it would just be like, this is exactly it. It's, uh, I love, I love going to San Diego. Uh, yeah. I always come it, away from it hurt, but, like, it, it's worth it. <laughs> I, I love going to San Diego, and I have had, like, literally some of the worst times of my life at San Diego. <laughs> I can recount them, uh, yeah. and it's because it's just everyone's fucking tweaked out that weekend. Uh, like they're at the like upper limit of their abilities because it demands so much of you. And some people that is not a fun experience. Yeah. I happen to be a workaholic, so I find it really entertaining. I'm in this exact same boat. Like I've uh, like I'll, I don't ever want to go to the Eisners again uh, because something well, like super boring. It's that, and, like, I keep, whenever I go, I end up losing whatever I was up for, which always sucks, or, like, it's, like, an awkward experience or something. That's even such then, well, the Eisners, like, maybe you guys have, <laughs> I just, I had too much, I had one year where one of the judges slept on my couch, and I got nominated for, like, five awards that year, <laughs> and then the following year, um, the only guy that I've ever turned down for a profit cover, like, he did it, turned in a cover, and I was like, that's not going to work, was a judge, Yeah, and I didn't nominated for anything that year and so it just felt so like um like the politics felt super i was super aware of them and it just seemed really stupid and not about the work oh i can't even speak to the politics this was all like uh i feel embarrassed to be here now and i don't know how to leave uh elegantly (laughs) (laughs) really the one year that i won i really really wanted um life felt this is horrible even even that i thought it was funny at the time it's horrible but i wanted Liefeld to go up and do the Sasha Littlefeather uh, speech. Oh man! <laughs> you know the one that um, Marlon, when Marlon Brando got an Oscar, he sent up a Native American woman who did a talk about the treatment of how he wasn't going to accept it because of the treatment of, of Native people in movies. 
And it would have been a joke that like me and two other guys thought were funny and everyone else would have been just like hugely, rightly, morally outraged. <laughs> but the Eisners are weird like that because they're also like it's a big deal for the industry. It feels like, like they celebrate comic shops. They celebrate, uh, most levels of creators. Yeah. Actually, maybe all color and letters. Um, so like there's this weird pageantry going on. There's a, it's, it's, it is important. And I can actually like, people have started to figure out what the Eisner awards are outside yeah. of our industry. And that makes them important. Um, there's no scrutiny of the Eisner Awards, and I have a real problem with well, that. Well, if you are, if you do scrutinize, you'll never be nominated for an Eisner. Or you'll never be a judge. Yeah. <laughs> I no feel like comment. I would be a great Eisner judge, but yeah. I don't have those connections yet. We can uh, call it Ebony's. Like, uh, <laughs> I always like <laughs> it's weird that Eisner gets so, like, like that. Like when you start to like break apart his career, there's there's big things in it. Like I don't know if that's I know ob- he obviously is a fantastic cartoonist in a lot of ways, but a lot of ways his his work's very um, not timeless. Yeah, it was funny, uh, like scare quotes funny when he replaced Ebony White with like a Japanese stereotype. Oh Jesus! Oh right. Yeah, that was it's like okay, it's a sidestep, but it's not quite a step forward. Will maybe he's just like covering all of his bases. <laughs> well you know he's a big influence on frank miller and uh you know blah 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 passing down the torch um blah 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 oh what about san diego at nighttime chris how do you feel about kind of that sort of culture are you well, as so saying, it is it is absolutely like las vegas now where it's just like you're going like people are drunk and there's a lot of people who are like not in the same place like, like it caters to so many different kinds of people now that it's just you're all kind of tolerating each other. <laughs> it's like the club goers are kind of t- tolerating the like average people who are at Comic-Con or tolerating the hardcore nerds or tolerating the creators who are trying to get into the party or whatever. Like it's just it's weird. And I I have I, I mean, I'll, I'll say it out loud and I'll just curse it. But uh, the last couple of years, I've just like. You know, I'm friends with some good people, and one year that meant getting into the Wired Lounge, where I just went for lunch every day for two hours and drank <laughs> bourbon and ate chicken wings and danced, <laughs> and that was my lunch break at, at the Comic-Con. And then last year, you know, a friend of mine became a PA to someone who threw, like, the most exclusive party on Saturday night, so I was in there while my friends were like, "Who the f- like, how the fuck did you get in? I'm such and such who works at such and such, and it's just like... It, you can't you can't take it seriously. I like all of it is so so capricious and so bullshit. And if you get to do a thing that's cool, like just just have fun. Like take yeah, every ounce of it. joy out of it. Because uh, if you try to do that thing, like if you actually are like angling for it or trying to do it, it's not going to happen. Hmm. It, like I feel like what sums up San Diego is that one year our video game company brought down a pirate ship and we're like firing rockets off in, or cannonballs off into the ocean. Yeah. Yeah, like that's, that's exactly that's absurd, but also kind of amazing. Huh. Also, kind of talking about the nightlife um, makes me think of like the dangers that come with that of artists who've been kind of shut off in their room and potentially uh, irrecoverably embarrass themselves um, with some. I can't think of any anyone in comics who has irreparably embarrassed themselves. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you can't. There, I always say you can't ruin a comic career. Like you can, 
be a horrible person and ruin friendships and everything, but they, the industry in, on a whole seems completely remarkably forgiving of the total shitbag <laughs> behavior. You're probably that's one right. of those things. I feel like that's a like a people problem, like a man problem, as opposed to a comics thing. Yeah, because like there are, there are crappy dudes everywhere. Mm-hmm. But like for me, like I try to, I try to stay very aware of who I'm hanging out with and like what's going on around us uh, and whatnot. Just because like I've had people come up to my table uh, where I'd be sitting with friends and like say hello to every girl at the table, pause for a second and then leave when no one says hello back. Like that's just aggravating is is the (laughs) kindest word I can choose for that. But you just have to kind of protect yourself. Like don't let those people around you and chase them out when they show up. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. I think there's, I think there's a little bit more, I think there's a little bit more closing ranks, but I don't know. I think it's so, it's so weird. And I don't, I don't know. I don't want to make you uncomfortable, David, but it's so weird because image in particular is seen as this promised land uh, of like, if I just get my image book and then I just get my image book to get a contract somewhere, like a like a like a film option or whatever, then I'm set. And it, image, and so people are anyone who's in an image or publishing a book in image suddenly becomes this like target in a social setting. It's it's very strange watching that happen. And I I mean, yeah, I think being discerning about who you're hanging out with and where you're spending your time is is huge. Is absolutely huge. Uh, and I feel bad for the folks that are like seeing some success that can't, you know, just go get a drink and chat with people now because everyone's trying to like get in with them. It's yeah. the worst part. Actually, that's the worst part about the nightlife at San Diego is that it's really hard to sometimes have a conversation because someone's trying to get in on something. And because people are people are sort of trying to get up on that, I guess. I don't know. It's well, a hustle. They, you're pretty new. You're relatively new at Image. Did you notice a big a big jump in conventions from before you worked in comics to after? Uh, like in terms of people talking to me and things like that? Yeah. Uh, yeah, definitely. It's probably part of why like, I'm vague about what my job is. Because <laughs> uh, <laughs> like, I, like, I, my title is content manager, and that doesn't really mean anything immediately apparent. Um, but yeah, people have definitely approached me like, hey, can you give this book to so-and-so? Uh, how do the deals work? And so on. But... Like, I'm, I'm pretty quiet. Like, I tend to hang with friends. Like, Brandon, you've seen me at Emerald City. I just sit at, like, our table at the back end of the bar. Right. Uh, and I think that saves me from a lot of that. But it's weird because, like, I, I, I always feel like I'm just some random guy. Like, I'm nobody special. So when people are asking me for favors, it's like, can't you find somebody else? Like, somebody more connected? <laughs> so many panels where you're kind of the presenter, and that's got to... Yeah, people definitely uh, try to pass me books and stuff after shows, but like it's it's the worst time for that. I feel like because uh, my mind is on the next panel, and like the people at the booth's mind are on selling comics. No one there, no one is really there in a creative capacity. Um, I guess you can make a case for panels being creative, but they don't count for this. Right. I always just stash things, and then and then you know a week later, I'm like, where did I get this comic? It's really good. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. <laughs> Um, um, but it is cool that people will give me their comics to read, uh, like not even in like a like please publish this sort of way. But someone asked a question at um, Anaheim WonderCon. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a really good question, and I said so from the stage. And she came by the booth later and gave me a mini comic that she'd printed up, uh, just as like thanks because she'd had a good time at this panel, and that was awesome. Like that's, that's the sort of thing that's beautiful. I feel. 
No, actually, I really like that about I really like that about that part of it. I guess is uh, is getting to be there, and when you're repping, like I worked I worked for Drawn and Quarterly for like a year and a half in between, or just before Peggy Burns and Tom Devlin got hired, and I was like at their booth at San Diego and SPX, and then San Diego again. And my name's Chris, right? So everyone's just mm-hmm. like, oh, that Chris, something at Drawn and Quarterly, he's the guy I got to give my books to, uh, <laughs> and. It was the weirdest mistake in identity because I, I was literally, I had no, I was like, I mean, I was not even an official employee of D&Q. So, yeah, you can pitch me as hard as you want to, but it's like it literally doesn't matter. I'm so not important. But at the same time, uh, you you would feel right away someone who's like, yeah, I want you to publish me. And like, yeah, you've inspired me. Like, you guys published the, the stuff that, you know, made me want to be a comic artist. I just want to give you my comic. Yeah. And you can pick that up right away, and the latter feels really good, and the former is just like hilarious. Yeah. Uh, I, like you can't stop laughing at it, and it, it's it is I, it is the best and the worst part of about being in a booth like that is someone coming up and like, oh man, you gotta publish my stuff, and it's just like, oh dude, you know, like you know, it's not gonna be real because if you had like actual ability and had done your homework and had really looked at this, like you would just know there's like a hundred, there's like a thousand articles written every year in the comics press about like, don't pitch shows. No one's got time for that. Uh, and it's no, if they're not following that, then they're not following that. And they're probably not ready. But if they're like, Hey man, your work is just the shit and I love it. Uh, let me show you what I'm doing. Totally different thing. And I think that it's, it, it's, you know, it goes back to what you were saying about your attitude and approaching a situation. It's like, I'm going to have a good time in San Diego. I'm going to be ready for the bad stuff, but I'm going to have a good time. And if you go in with that, like, I'm going to get published attitude, it's so off-putting. Yeah. Right. Like, there are goals you can set, but they can't be that concrete. Like, you can't say, you know, I'm going to come away from this with a Marvel deal because nine times out of ten, you're not. And then you're going to feel like a failure. But if it's, you know, I've got a really strong portfolio, I'm going to show six editors my work then that's like a much healthier way to go about it. Yeah, it's, it's all about because setting expectations, really. What were we saying, David? Oh, it's all about setting expectations. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking a lot of the shows I've gone to that I enjoyed the most weren't ones that I ever got anything out of, and they're shows that I've actually, like, you know, gotten deals from that I don't remember the actual shows or didn't enjoy them all that much. Hmm. Now, yeah. We're talking about some good shows, some bad shows, and I'm wondering, because we're seeing more and more of these uh, like Wizard World-style shows. Vancouver, we have Fan Expo that's been here about four years ago, which is a flat-out train wreck. Uh, and I'm wondering about how these kind of subpar events affect um, the idea of comics marketing through conventions and stuff. And maybe I'm being too mean about these events, and you guys don't want to be as mean as me. No, I mean, no, I was going to say that. Bad one. Oh, go ahead, Chris. No, 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 no. Go ahead. Uh, I was going to say I've never been to a wizard show, and this is going to sound so arrogant, but I feel like I haven't been to a bad show in a long time either. Hmm. But it's sort of because of like what my job requires me to do at shows, like just screws with my perception. Mm-hmm. I, I I have a different point of view than uh, probably even people behind the table or creators. Just right, well, special edition panels. was interesting for me because it was like such. I did feel very out. It wasn't. It wasn't a bad show, but I was out of my element. It was much more superhero show. Yeah. Oh, special edition felt like uh, mainstream ape, which was really fascinating to me. Hmm. Yeah, made it where I didn't like. Um, I kind of. It was, I just conned from uh, from uh, Van Calf, just like you know the the 
the um, the show is kind of the local show here in Vancouver that's kind of inspired by TCAF. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that that show this year was fantastic, and they had this like so many amazing just like small press indie cartoonists there. And so like walking around every time, I, I kept finding new stuff and 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 really excited about the stack of books I got back. And at that show, just because not just because of the type of work that I like walking around, there's just lots of like lots of like uh, superhero stuff that didn't didn't wasn't on the the level, that, and a lot of stuff that was just like. You know, posters of Wolverine or whatever. Yeah, it's very uh, dramatically different. I uh, I like all kinds of weird, dumb comics, so I can pretty much find something to enjoy anywhere. Like I would spend just one day at eight, but I would spend a hundred dollars or something like that. Even though <laughs> I'm like nowhere near conversant in many comics and alternate, like small press stuff. Uh, but like, if you put a quarter bin in front of me, I'm sure I can find a cover that looks cool that I want to check out more from. So that's kind of what I look for when I'm like a uh, attendee of shows. Mm-hmm. It's like, what can I get out of this, as opposed to uh, what's this going to be like? Mm. So I'm, I'm curious. You're saying you didn't go to a bad show uh, in a long time, David. Are you like this image consult you about shows it does, or is this like a committee, or is it like one dude who's like these are the eight shows we're doing, or what's the deal? Uh, it's a mix. We're still like it's so there's like 15 people in our office, so we're, we can like change on a dime very quickly. Mm. Uh, That was redundant, but you get me. Uh, (laughs) So like special edition, uh, we weren't going to do, but they emailed us like, Hey, we have some space and like half the creators here are image creators. You want to come and do some, you know, uh, programming. And so I made my case to the boss and he was like, that sounds great. Let's do it. And it was as easy as that. Uh, It just, it depends. Like there are shows that we always do. I feel like San Diego's on there, uh, Emerald city, New York, like the, the the big shows, I guess the big three of the mainstream conventions. Yeah, but we're like actively looking for ways to expand into others too. Just because, mm-hmm. like, we miss out on a lot. Like, not all of our books are necessarily the uh, New York Comic Con crowd, for example. Yeah. Right? Um, like, I feel like Brandon stuff probably does better at like an SPX than it would at a New York Comic Con, and it's not like. Uh, shortcoming in the work so much as just aiming it at the right audience. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So do you see Image making an effort to to find a presence at these small press shows? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Even if it's just like flying me out to talk to people that we have there mm-hmm. on a on a panel, not just... Mm, going back to your question for a sec, Robin, I, I go back and forth. I do think that bad shows hurt show like hurt convention culture in general but i don't think it's like it's it's i don't think it kill, I, don't, I don't think it's a it's a mortal <laughs> blow you know what i mean like mm-hmm. i think that um i think that for example san diego is like the top of the heap right and for the last couple of years you've had to like Lottery for badges, lottery for hotels. Uh, it, there's a lot of there's a lot invested in going to Comic Con now, and as that was ramping up and it was getting harder and harder, people started taking the behavior that they were forced to undertake to participate in Comic Con and applying it to other shows. So shows like Emerald City started selling out earlier. Shows like New York Comic Con started selling out earlier. And, you know, New York Comic Con had a disastrous first year, but they, they kind of tried to fix their shit. Um, but I think 
the problems with Comic-Con cascaded through the industry. And so now every show like, you know, Vancouver, I don't know about Vancouver, but Calgary sells out every year and, and, and a bunch of shows like that. And I think it's because there was some stuff that Comic-Con could have done differently and they just ended up training people like this is how you participate in a show. You like buy your tickets early and you like hoard shit and you, you know, and, and I don't think it's all fair to lay at Comic-Con's feet, but I definitely think that like, yeah, when it, when one show does something especially if they do it bad enough and in a big enough way, it definitely affects other events. And I think that that's, that's, yeah, it's, it's unfortunate. It's, 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 it's not, like I said, it's not a a moral blow. I think any smart show that can do some good marketing can overcome a lot of that. And we really try to like, you know, maintain a positive conversation about what we do at TCAF uh, through social media and stuff like that and be just being available to talk to people. Um, but yeah, like you, you, how many disaster cons do you have to come across in your Twitter feed or people not getting refunds or the show getting shut down halfway before you realize that, yeah, there's there's a lot of people that are undermining faith in shows. Uh, and it's rough. It's really rough. And also uh, one, I think that, go ahead, David. Oh, I was going to say, I think that the, um, the fact that there are very few shows that can be impulse like shows, like TCAF is one I feel like you can show up on a weekend. And it'll be fine. Like, you'll have plenty of room. You can see some cool stuff, blah, blah, blah. But, like, going to San Diego is a year-long journey, you know? Yeah. And I I really think that we lose a lot because of that, just in terms of people who would attend, a variety of attendees, and even, like, the type of sales that we could make at shows. I think think San Diego's become really calcified in, like, how you have to do San Diego as a show. I think it's really hard to break out of that now. Like you've got to have exclusives because you've got to drive the, those customers to your booth and hopefully you can try and upsell them on some other stuff. But like, yeah, the people who are at San Diego now are the like most dedicated, most hardcore and generally the people who are like turning fa- their fandom into like a business. You know what I mean? Like yeah. getting all those exclusives and flipping them on eBay. And if that's who's coming to the show and you're set up selling stuff, like that's who you've got to sell to and you've got to figure out a way to sell, sell to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you start, you know, pushing towards more exclusives, like variants, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I think that that you can go to San Diego now and if you're not doing that stuff, you're not having a good show. And, I, and a lot of the publishers I talk to are in the same boat. A lot of the, the, the retailers I talk to are in the same boat. It, it, it's why a lot of retailers have stopped showing up at, at San Diego. It's because people go to that show and they're not looking, they're not casual buyers anymore because you can't be a casual fan at that show. Yeah. I, uh, I actually, I gave an essay to io9 last year in hindsight, I should have charged them, but, uh, it was about <laughs> how San Diego didn't suck for comics. It's like, that was, yeah. that, that was the narrative. Uh, maybe it was the year before last, but whenever. Uh, and I was like, no, San Diego was great for comics. Like look at all this ridiculous stuff that was on display for really cheap or free. Like you can, you can have a really nice experience in San Diego with just comics if you wanted to. But a lot of that is because I'm like my position is weird. Like it's hard to describe how altered it is from you know standing in front of a lectern to uh, being a fan. Mm. There is some neat stuff that happens in a place like, like a couple of years ago. Fanographics had Gilbert Shelton signing at San Diego, which to me is a big deal that you don't see very often because he's moved to France and he's one of the you know most important underground creators. Um, yeah. but because they can get that turnaround on his stuff. Um, they'll have them sign there, um, which is a really unique opportunity. And Dark Horse always has like manga legends signing at their booth, and no one shows up because no one knows who they are, and it's depressing. 
Oh, yeah. yeah, that was for me. One year I went and got to um, hang around at Toronto's table for a really long time, and nobody. It was really easy just to like talk to him through a translator and get a bunch of sketches. Yeah, I got uh, actually Deb Aoki got me one. She went to Japan and got one for me because she's like the best friend in the world. Nice. Uh, but that's the kind of experience that I think, like in their haste to make San Diego worth it, publishers will put on that kind of stuff, which I really appreciate. <laughs> it's so nice as a fan if you can get. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Uh, this is my first year. I'm actually like barely working this year, which is awesome. Uh, I think I have to cover the booth like an hour a day, maybe. Um, so yeah, I'm actually going to like, I got to see Tirada only because, uh, Eric who, who owns Udon is also a huge Tirada fanboy, And he's like, I'm going to go see Tirada. Do you want to come? And I'm like, great. That means I don't have to watch the booth and I can just leave it in everyone else's hands. Cause I'm with the boss. It's perfect. <laughs> Otherwise, like, I haven't got to see anybody at that show in years unless I'm on a panel with them. So yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. I hope Dark Horse pulls out all the stops again this year. Yeah, uh, yeah watching Tarada draw was such a huge influence on how I act at conventions too. Because every drawing, I, I don't do this every show, obviously, because it's it's hard. But every drawing he was doing for people online was were dramatically different. Oh yeah, like, mm. yeah, like a baby with a saxophone, and the next one's like a car with wings, and then like you know a woman wearing horse blinders or something. Just like just you know like you know watched him do like you know ten sketches, and none of them were repeats. Yeah, I have to post mine online. It's almost like a, a Mobius-y airtight garage person in a trench coat, like from the shoulders up. Oh, nice. Uh, it looks amazing. Like, I love his art so much. But uh, mm-hmm. Like you were saying, uh, San Diego is what you get out of it. Uh, last year, I also ran around taking selfies with cosplayers from, uh, I don't know, video games, cartoons, comics that I like. And that really changed the convention for me, too. Because people really respond to enthusiasm. Mm-hmm. Like, cosplayers aren't doing it for the attention, but, like, they still... It's nice to be able to validate their enthusiasm. Just by being a recognition of that. Yeah, exactly. I was wondering if you guys think we're past the era of people being sour about cosplayers. I hope so, because it is so boring to hear somebody complain about cosplay. No, it's, it's not even... We're not even at peak complaining about cosplay yet. Yeah, because you don't really you don't have them at, at TCAP, but I mean, every once in a while we see someone like walking around in like a steampunk outfit with stilts on or something. Yeah, it's it's I have a real um, I I look at it uh, maybe a different way than than some people do. Uh, I being a going to shows, they're like uh, really especially when I was going to them, they're really male spaces, like heterosexual male spaces. Uh, mm-hmm. I used to go to like Motor City Comic Con in Detroit, and it's like, oh, here's your small press table, and you're the same like, you're the same aisle as like a Playboy Playmate and a NASCAR driver, and it's just like these are like hetero male spaces. And being a gay teenager who's doing like, you know, semi autobio mini comics and shit like that, like, it's just it, it, everyone agrees that a that a that a show is going to try and be as safe a space as possible for everyone participating, but it's still a really, like, hetero-male thing. And I think um, that's changing, and I think it's they're doing some really good work with the cosplay is not consent stuff. But we're also, like, with TCAF, um, we're in a library, and it's a public building. We've always been in public buildings or, like, outside or whatever. Um, and you can't, you can't get that agreement out of people. You're in a public space, and there's, like, and on any given weekend at TCAF, there's 2,000 people using the library that don't care about 
TCAP or comics or cosplay or whatever. And there are a lot of people from different economic, you know, backgrounds. There are a lot of people that that use the library because it's a warm place to be for for eight hours, right? So mm-hmm. you can't like people go and there's security guards and people can try and feel I think people can feel safe like they would in any other public situation, but it's not a like safe space as a term. So for you to like express yourself in that way, like there's no, there's just the basic social contract. And I mean, you know, people get yelled at on the street for, you know, dressing a certain way or having a certain hair color or being a woman or, you know, being a person of color, like they get yelled at all the time. And that, that is a total possibility in a public building like this. And the more you make yourself stand out in that way against what, you know, perceived norms are of society, the, the more of a target you become. And so we discourage cosplay on exactly those grounds because we're not creating a safe space and we can't uh, because it's a public space. Um, right. and, I, and I think there's a different, like when you take over a convention center, there's a lot of things that happen uh, and it's, there's a camaraderie there, but it's also, you know, it's, it, you have to acknowledge that it is a problematic camaraderie in a lot of ways. Um, so that's my, that's my issue with, with cosplay. And I think, that's, that's an issue with cosplay at TCAF. I think in the larger thing, though, and the reason I was pessimistic is that, like, the cosplay is not the problem. The cosplay is the face of this change in the way conventions are going to operate from now on mm. um, in terms of uh, the sort of semi-professional fan. Uh, mm. Like, and I, I talked about this in the blog a little bit, but, like, you know, YouTube celebrities or, or cosplayers or famous cosplayers or any of that kind of stuff where you're, you know, you're buying a, just an admission to the show, but you become an, a, a partial tra- attraction as well without a booth, without any of that kind of stuff. And that's not going to change. I mean, there's, there's, that's more and more a part of the industry now. Um, and I think it's easy because you can point at a cosplayer and say, this person looks different than the other attendees. This person is the problem. And I think that's what like Dave Dorman's wife did uh, without considering that like, no, this person is like, probably the, the lowest person on the totem pole that's a problem for you. It's Maybe it's that YouTube guy who's here who's got like 400,000 people a week viewing what he's putting up on YouTube and he's like walking around filming himself with like a crowd of 75 people behind him that's like, those are 75 people that aren't buying stuff at your booth or they're blocking your booth most of the time. Yeah. Or, you know, it's, it's just the way the industry's changing and I think that cosplay's just a convenient target and it's unfortunate. Yeah. Sorry, that was a really I, long idea. I really apologize. No, no, that was good because um, I think that the like I knew about the TCAF semi policy, for lack of a better, um, mm. and I think it's really smart just because, like you were saying, conventions there's already kind of a social contract in place, like even before cosplay is not consent, that kind of had you on the same team. Mm. Uh, but yeah, like outside, like anything goes. Like outside sucks. <laughs> real world it's it's yeah there's no real world unreal world division unfortunately uh in some ways and i would love i would love that um because i like you know i mean fuck every artist almost every artist a tcaf is all about like expressing their personal ideas on the world through their artwork um and i think that cosplay you know especially if it's original but even if it's not it's about it's about identification with a thing and your take on that thing i think it's it's cool. It's like a craft. Um, yeah, absolutely. What was I've, uh, I've taken to thanking cosplayers and image panels just because I think that like it's so vital to the culture. Like maybe not cosplay specifically, but like that kind of engaged fan. I feel like uh, they sort of lead the industry, or maybe lead the. They lead something. Like they help 
convince other fans to get into books. They spread the word. It's a very yeah, specific sure. type of type of fan. I don't I don't know if I've known many cosplayers very well, but though it's always fun to inter- I, I like David. We you did a panel. And I noticed you had all the cosplayers stand up at a certain point. Yeah, and it was just cool because you kind of saw the costumes. And it's interesting. And creators that, flip out like they they love it, and with good reason. Yeah. It's interesting the books that like work well for cosplay too. Like it's it's like Saga seems like a cosplay book. <laughs> I think a lot of people cosplay. are designing for cosplay now. Yeah, which is really interesting because like yeah, I don't like in I barely have characters keep the same clothes on for an issue. Yeah. But I've and, seen I've seen a fair amount of folks dressing as your characters, or like walking around with a cat in a bucket. Yeah, no, there's been a, there's been a good yeah. I don't think I'm the cosplay. Uh, I don't think I'm the creator that does cos. Like Wicked Divine, it's, you see some fantastic cosplay for that one. Yeah, McKelvey is a genius. <laughs> like it's honestly, it's so crazy. Like how dedicated and just into it those fans are. Yeah, and it's that's it's it's nice too when you when you know the creators and you know that it's like worth someone backing a book like that. Yeah, <laughs> I actually I'm really. Uh... I think exactly what you're saying. What you're saying, Brandon, is really true, and I, I love that idea. Like, it's mystifying to me. Uh, like, I don't get it, but like the the the, uh, the 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 sorry, I'm totally blanking. The bitch planet tattoos. Oh, the uh, non-compliant. The non-compliant tattoos. I think is like I, I can't. I, I mean, I've been trying to decide what tattoo do I want to get for for ten years now, and these are people that, after the third issue of a, a, a comic, or if the first issue for that matter, are getting non-compliant tattoos uh, because something speaks to them, and they're that kind of person that like are going to like be vocal, vocal advocates for that thing. Um, that kind right. of identification, that kind of investment, is absolutely incredible. Well, and part of that, it's not just based on the comic, but it's the the buy-in that people have just with Kelly Sue as a person, and like her ethics and how she speaks about her work and that was like a way of symbolizing that that like i support you and you stand up for what i want to say yeah Yeah, i I think that kind of connection is more and more important and like i love that it's happening organically it's not like you know there's a hashtag and then people buy in it's more like people buy in and then participate you know in the culture like kelly sue didn't try to form her insanely huge fan base you know she just did her thing <laughs> she just did her work yeah it's uh it's i think it's an extent of the cosplay situation where it's like i feel compelled to be a part of this thing but in like a much deeper more permanent <laughs> way yeah uh, it's yeah like i said it's beyond me but uh i want to make sure that there's always space for those people i think in things that i do mm-hmm. yeah that was the other thing that we were talking about i was talking about the other day um was that like there's so many things in the industry that are outside of my control um, that don't go the way I want them to. But like, yeah, friggin' conventions. I'm doing one. I exhibit at them. I get to write about them. People will talk to me about them. Like that's the thing where I think I can try and actually make some changes in the industry. I think we've already like TCAP has already sort of led some changes in the industry, and I wish we could do more. But uh, yeah, I think. I think that's super important that if you're given a if you have a position within the industry where you can affect some positive change that you do it. So that's and I, I that's why I appreciate uh, it's it's rough, David, because I think you say, I mean, I don't want to, I would never want to jeopardize your personal you know safety or, or comfortability, but you say some really good true shit about what it's like to be in the industry on your Twitter, uh, 
and it's oh, it's locked yeah. and that's your decision <laughs> and i'm like i respect it but yeah it would be it would be great uh well it it, it is great i'm glad i get to yeah. participate that way i uh i want to do more panels and stuff like that uh, i'm actually moderating like a diversity panel at uh ala next week the week after oh, yeah, one yeah. of the two uh but like i i it's an uncomfortable conversation but I've also got kind of a megaphone, so it'd be irresponsible not to take part. Right? It's How just is it, finding been, a balance. So, where they been? Have they been positive? I heard some. I heard some weird stuff about the New York one. I wanted to hear, hear your take on on how they work out, or how what, I missed the first part of that question. Oh, I just kind of how the diversity panels are specifically. Oh, uh, they. Uh, it all depends on the approach. Um, if you're just looking to, like, just generally talk about it and not. And say anything like I feel like that's sort of the default mode or like a self-congratulatory mode which is never good mm-hmm. right um but I caught one in New York that was really good it was uh, moderated by Daisy Romero from NPR and they had like Greg Pak, Valentine, Delandro, Alita Martinez uh, like a lot of really smart people right and they were like they were talking they got as deep as talking about the different like little things that are specific to each of our cultures that we might not necessarily share but oh, okay. are like hardcore so, markers so, so. of the culture is that the one that Bendis, that Bendis crashed in a weird way? Oh, no, Bendis was on the Black Comics Month one. He was actually invited, uh, but he, like, I think he showed up late or something like that. Okay. I missed that one, but the video seemed pretty good. Like, that's a very enthusiasm-based, like, we can change the industry if we pay attention sort of approach. Okay, interesting. Like, very optimistic. But the ones that, like, that I'm wary of are where it's like, so-and-so is super diverse, come find out how. Because like that's not how you use that word, and also it's probably not true. Right. Well, I'm wondering if it's like, uh, like there's a very different thing between kind of the entry level conversation and the conversation that's like, you know, grown up talking. Yeah, yeah, I think the entry level conversation is marketing. Um, mm. Like so many comics panels from companies, and this isn't this is going to sound like a diss, but like it's just honest. Like it, they're there to sell comics, right? And so it doesn't benefit them to have that conversation because. Like you kind of got to admit that you screwed up. Like there's no there's no getting out of that for anybody, um, anybody involved in the industry or like in the business of making comics. And that's a bad business look, but like it's a really good, honest look if you can manage it. Yeah, it's a weird conversation because there's no way to say, there's no way to talk about the reality of it without everyone kind of shrugging their shoulders. Yeah, like you can't get better if you can't admit that you weren't on point. You know. Yeah. Um, but I, I really, I was going to do one in, in San Diego that I couldn't make that, uh, Chrissy Den from Boom put together because she's really smart. Like she's really engaged and paying attention and I'd love to be a part of that conversation, but hopefully in New York. Right. Do you guys feel like it, it does seem like, like kind of, more, you know, with how many women are, are now kind of, uh, becoming newer comic readers, it, it feels like the kind of culture of comics is shifting even on like a total mainstream level with stuff like, you know, Gotham Academy and, and, you know, Batgirl and then with like Kelly Sue's work and everything. Yeah. Hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. I'm wondering if it's going to be an actual shift. I, it feels almost like a parallel, parallel stream, you know, like there's like that side of comics and there's a lot of people involved in that side who are also on the other where it's still pretty dude centric. See, I have have like, I feel like an old man. What, are you asking this question? Because I've actually, like, I've seen this twice, I guess, in the, like, 20, 
I got them old. Uh, Twenty years I've been paying attention. <laughs> Twenty plus years I've been paying attention to comics, where like we've developed um, two completely parallel industries to what we think of as the comics industry and the like general discourse. Uh, the first time was manga, um, right. and manga just became a parallel industry. It was never. Right. It was always seen as the other from the. From, from mainstream comics, from floppy comics. And the second time is the bookstores. It's like the, the big publish or the, I hesitate to either say big or real publishers, but the like non-publishers, the, the New York publishing scene getting in on comics where it's just like, yeah, like Smile, <laughs> Ray Telgemeier's Smile outsold literally every comic last year and no one talks about it because it's not seen as, it's seen as a parallel, it's a parallel industry. So yeah. It, we've had these two massive, complete things that were othered, uh, completely othered, and now it's happening in the floppy comics, and people are still having a super like they're doing their best to say this isn't this isn't the mainstream. This isn't like they're they're narrowing their conversation. Uh, the people that are invested in in things the way they are, they're narrowing the conversation further and further and further and further, uh, t- so that they can keep saying that what they're doing is the most relevant thing. And it's like demonstrably not true. It is no longer the most relevant to, you know, if it's just sheer numbers, yeah, there's a lot more people that are paying attention to a lot of different books uh, that aren't, you know, superhero, like, sorry. And not to shit on DC or Marvel, cause I, but like straight up, that sort of very specific, you know, long-lived corporate superhero thing is still so much of the conversation about within the comics industry and the the websites and all the shit that's built around it, right? But it is yeah. less and less of what the actual sales are all right. the time. Well, I do feel something I find interesting. I don't know if it's this true, but my, my theory is that like movies and television just can do superheroes better than comics now. Like, <laughs> it's interesting. Like they Iron Man is a better movie, I think, than a comic book, which is weird because I, I prefer comic books. I do think that um, because of the movies, comics will get even more Marvel and DC versus everybody else. Like I think mm-hmm. that's also but speaking to what Chris is getting to. Is yeah, the like, movie what thing... does IDW have in, in term, What does IDW have in relation to the corporate culture of DC Comics, which is owned by Warner Brothers or Marvel Disney? Like, like they're like they're separate. They're totally separate things now. But everyone's still yeah. acting like they're the same thing, and they're just not anymore. It's very strange. I'm curious, though, like, even the movie thing, like, is that a perpetual motion machine? Is it going to keep going? Or are people going to get burnt out on superhero movies when you have one every two months over the next five years? I mean, there's, like, romance movies and, like, I can, I honestly own probably 12 different movies that are an undercover cop who has to do a lot of kung fu to get out of a jam. That's yeah, I've been one. watching a lot of Jason Statham movies lately. <laughs> yeah, and I think it'll just become another category, like westerns or nurse novels or something. <laughs> yeah, I mean, not nothing though, isn't it? Like, um, like, is it true? Somebody was mentioning to me the other day that the Fantastic Four comic isn't coming out anymore. Yeah, they stopped it really? because the movies in theaters. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah, that that totally seems like a like a direct reaction where it's like it almost feels like a company acknowledging that like the how powerful the movies are in relation to what they do as comics. It's uh, you can find two quotes from Tom Brevert, whose job it is, I guess, to be the public whipping boy for Marvel Comics. And the first <laughs> yeah. quote's from a year ago, 
And it's like, no, there's no truth to the rumor that like X-Men or Fantastic Four are getting less attention be- because we don't know the movie rights. That's ridiculous. It's just Rich Johnson stirring up shit, blah, blah, blah. Uh, like flat out denial. And then there's a quote from like two months ago where he's like, well, I mean, of course there's no Fantastic Four or X-Men books right now, but you can't expect a company to like spend all of its resources on something where it doesn't have all of the returns. Uh, and it's just like... Man, that is some that is some eight months of corporate speak like spin that you have been instructed in. Like that is that is harsh to read, my friend. And right. that is like the ultimate art versus commerce lesson too. Like how does anyone how does anyone reading those? That's like like I don't I want people to read books that they like, and if they like those books, like I am down. I'm a retailer, and I've been for so long that it's just like I just want people to enjoy the books that they're reading. But people who are on the fence, how can they look at that and go? That's anything other than like a real on high corporate decision that has nothing about nothing to do with creating the best comic that you can create, and that that kills me. Um, and it's why I'll make time and space at TCAF for the people doing Gotham Academy and Batgirl because they believe in those books. I, I know those creators and they love those books. But yeah. if if you're making some sort of weird corporate fuckery, then <laughs> like yeah, you, I don't have time for you because you are not there to make the best comics you can. Right, I think there's the, the, the shittiest circumstances, and that's a different thing. Right, right, and it, it is it is difficult too because a lot of the people kind of making the actual lines on paper and writing the comic books are going to be, uh, you know, under the under the control of of people that are making just kind of sales, uh, you know, higher up kind of corporate decisions, and that's yeah, I I don't know, I I, I shit on lots of Marvel and DC stuff, but it's very frustrating when you know the people that are doing the book and, and them not having entire control of what what the publishers decide to back. Yeah. Yeah, the story is... The same, yeah. Oh, I was going to say, then at the same time, it's really interesting when the publishers do back someone fully on like a weird, vague vanity project and it turns out fantastic, you know? <laughs> I, need an ex- I need an example on that one, man. Jeez. <laughs> uh, like all of that... Uh, the, Jeff Parker Atlas stuff that he was doing like Gabriel Hardman and um, I forget the first artist on the series, but like that was like the least mainstream mainstream Marvel stuff ever. And it yeah. was delightful. Like I was so <laughs> into it. Uh, I do love, I do love when people at that company decide that they can afford to publish something that no one believes in. Uh, yeah. Cause you get the weirdest, you know, kind of coolest stuff that they've published in a long time. Right, would you say for like Carol's Omega? Does that fit into that? Oh yeah, the the Jonathan Lethem Omega, absolutely. Um, sorry, Farrell Dalrymple Omega uh, with Jonathan Lethem. Uh, yeah, it's exactly <laughs> really that. Like that that is shocking that that book exists. Like that is profound. I know, like I, it was coming out, and I can't I can't do specifics, but there are retailers uh, and they talk, and there are some people who f- were livid that that book even was ex- like even existed. Uh, wow. Cause it was so fucking weird. And it's like, this is not why I order Marvel comics. And it's like, you cannot order it. And it's like, no, I have to, it sells. <laughs> <laughs> but I love that because that's also um, kind of Trojan horsing it. Like I discovered Satomo Nihei through that Wolverine miniseries that he did for Marvel. Right? Well, that's like the worst thing he ever did too. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's like nothing compared to uh, Blam or Cydonia or anything. But it's like I never would have found that if freaking Wolverine wasn't in it. Yeah. So it's this weird gift and a curse situation where they have an incredible amount of pull. 
but they aren't as brave with it as I would hope they would be. Yeah, that's that's, that's always frustrating. Is kind of what what they do with it. I was just yeah. always said that I was like thinking about the poor the poor humans that got into Minara because of the Spider Woman cover. <laughs> <laughs> but I always end up like, what do I know? Because any company that I ran would go like under within three months. But we have some really nice Euro comics on the show. <laughs> that sounds good. Yeah. Um, we've been going for almost an hour and a half, an hour and twenty. Um, so you're saying we should double that up? Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> Let me just go get a sandwich. Uh-huh. Um, I f- I feel kind of of uh good with what we have, but I wonder if anyone has any kind of thoughts and comments to add on. Um, for for the end, I don't know. Um, I, I had some interesting. I, I was interested in. Uh, I was trying to think of a way to word it that didn't sound horrible, but I was interested in just kind of the experience that that both these guys had, just as being minorities in different spots, in in how comic industry change, how how they feel represented in the comic industry, and how that if that's changed at all. Uh, I can say I hang mostly with like brown people at conventions or people that I already know pretty well. Uh, not as like a self-selection thing or like, I only want to hang with black people at shows, but just it's safer at parties. Like sometimes mm-hmm. people will say some really fucked up shit to you that they think is profound. Mm-hmm. I'd rather avoid that experience. Right. You're there to have, that, especially after hours, you're there to have a good time. There's yeah, exactly. No, there's no telling what someone's going to come up with. Or even just like, hey, man, do you want to talk about police brutality? And it's like, no, I want to keep talking to this girl that I've been talking to at this party after a comic convention. (laughs) You know? (laughs) But that's just like being discerning about who you're hanging out with. Like, it always comes back to that for me. Mm -hmm. Right. I came out online way before I came out uh, to the general, my general friend circle. Um, Like, years and years. Um... And it was uh, coming online was really good for me, and I know it wasn't. It isn't a good situation, and especially not twenty years ago or whatever. Um, it wasn't for everybody, but uh, yeah, I I don't know. I I don't. I look at the comics industry for the most part, and I don't see myself reflected in it uh, at all. Mm-hmm. It's very. Um, very hetero male, and when they, when comics, even though they're just like the tiniest bit queer, uh, I gravitate towards them. Uh, they really, really speak to me, and especially, um, and it, I think there's a division between, you know, not a division because I think I think it, there's a rising tide there, but um, the like, <clears throat> uh, boys love uh, yaoi approach to like superheroes and things like that, like the Winter Soldier. Captain America stuff and whatever. Oh, like yeah. it's neat to see those sort of like heterosexual institutions being queered. I think that's kind of cool, but that's not it's not for me. Like it's really clearly not for me as a, as a gay man. Um, I yeah, I just I don't see myself reflected in the industry, and it's such a bummer because anytime I have a one on one with anyone who works for any publisher or whatever, it's like yeah, no, I want to do like I, we want to have more gay books. There's no one pitching them. There's no one whatever. And then when I hear people talking about how there's no ethnic there's such so little ethnic diversity it's always yeah we want to do books with more with more we want more diversity like it's if it's like a thing that they can buy but it's like what are you doing to encourage 
the generation of people who would produce that material are, are I feel doing like, that. I feel like creators are out there, you know. I mean, I mean, there's certainly like uh, Lovable Oaf and uh, and the stuff in the Massive and everything. Like well, Massive, you, is like Massive. Oh, the best part about Massive. You want to know the best part about Massive? It's a friend of mine who said who's who's gay. He's like a like a gay Asian dude, and he's like, I had never ever in my entire life seen um, Asian men presented as sex symbols in a like really forthright way. So it skips, skips the gay, it skips the like body image stuff. It skips the whatever. It's just like, just like a sexy Asian dude at the front of something. Yeah. uh, He had never seen. And he was in his like twenties. That's, that's what massive is so important. And I like, fuck, I responded real quick to that. Uh, And I think that like, yeah, I I think, sorry. I go after stuff like Massive. I go after people who are like legitimately putting the work out and trying to make a difference both at the store and at the festival and personally because it's, it's, it's an experience that speaks to me when I read it. Um, well, with, sure. the, with the festival itself, don't you make a, like an extra special effort to um, provide space for folks that mm. may not I don't know. Things? I don't know. I don't want to say yes because... We really there is a there's a there's a pretty solid meritocracy in terms of um, getting space at a show um, within like you know existing patriarchal structures etc. Uh, but we do look at how important work is um, and we consider that part of its merit. So it's not just about like straight up draftsmanship or just straight up sales or straight up whatever. But it's like who is the community that this is speaking to and is that community Well, maybe not necessarily who is so, coming so, yeah. but, but providing like safe spaces and <clears throat> connecting with events. No, that's or all it's can... all tied together, man. It's not separate. You have the creators at the show and mm-hmm. that brings in the people who feel safe at the show. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. So you can't you can't divide it. You can't say like uh, we did away with with women in comics and gays in comics panels completely this year and mm-hmm. we just uh, Bridget Alverson, who I love, um, was the person who picked up on it in their rap right up at TCAF. And they're like, yeah, there was no women in comics or gays in comics panel. And I just checked and it's like, I would say 60% women were participating in panels. And I'm like, yeah, no, we did that. Like that was deliberate because women can be on panels that aren't about women in comics. And, you know, people of diverse backgrounds can be on panels about whatever, about like how to make money in comics or how to, you know, how to run an anthology. And it's not just about you know, putting those people on the, on their, like what their minority status is. So to answer your question, yes and no, like we (laughs) pay attention to it, but we don't, we can't, we don't make it a rule. It's so much a TCAF. Like the safe space thing, like that was never on a TCAF blog. That was on my personal blog because we don't want to make a rule about it because that's then all of a sudden it's like, Oh, you've got to be held to this standard by the internet court of assholes. And I'm not down. Like I'm not down for that, but I am always, always convinced every year that I did my absolute best. I'm totally willing to hear criticism and feedback and just make it better next time for people who didn't have a good time. And I think that that's, I think that's the best way for us to go forward. Mm-hmm. I think that's the best way for everybody, honestly. <laughs> that's, um, it's pretty similar to what I try to do with uh, image panels, especially now that I'm in charge of the rosters and everything, is we don't have enough um, female creators to do 50-50 every time, which is yeah. really frustrating. But I just try to make sure that as many different types of people are represented as I can. And sometimes, like at Emerald City, um, I had a panel that ended up being like 
five bald white dudes and two more uh, bearded white guys. <laughs> Brandon. And, <laughs> I might have been did, on that. I don't know. Uh, it was, I forget who was on it. I've done like 20 panels this year already. But um, I opened the panel. I was like, look, this isn't how I wanted this to turn out. All these people are fantastic creators and I think we'll have a good time. But I'm going to try to do better in the future because I think it's oh, important yeah, I wasn't to panel, acknowledge. Just like, look at this bunch of honkies. Yeah. <laughs> It got a little blazing saddles, you know, but, um, yeah, yeah. Like I think that having that mix is important also from like a, uh, art and culture perspective, just because different points of view, uh, and as different as you can get them are so, so valuable. Yeah. I've learned so much just from being friends with different types of people on Twitter, whether they're from, whether like Americans living in Japan or uh, immigrants or whatever, just because like I'm exposed to it, and now like it's part of my reality. Mm. And Chris, I like what, I really liked what you said about the creators bringing the types of fans that would be comfortable with that work. Yeah, I I honestly think that like there's a comic out there for everybody. Like anybody can read a freaking comic book. It's just like introducing them to it, and if you make it. Uh, like hostile to kind of even get them in the door before you can put a book in their hands. Like you are really fucking up. The blind community doesn't read comics. <laughs> there's actually there's some good blind comics, but um, yeah, no, there's it, a Hawkeye they did in uh, Braille, the oh, Fraction awesome. Aja stuff. Yeah, because I saw I just, it's totally stupid, but I I just saw somebody I don't remember who was had a comment like, does a blind person at a convention ever get mistaken for Daredevil cosplay? And I was like, why would a blind person be at a comic convention? Oh no! Oh wait, actually, I'm totally wrong. Uh, Hawkeye had an ASL issue. Daredevil had the blind issue. Yes. Yeah. And okay. blind people will go to comic book spaces because people like to be around other people. And um... who doesn't like a comic con? It's fun. Haven't you been listening? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sold. Uh, I will say straight up that any convention organizer that's decided to listen to this, like everyone, every convention organizer does the same thing I just described about like bringing the but they don't think about it that way. They don't think about it as like a, 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 you know, for lack of a better word, diversity issue. They think about it like they're just trying to sell tickets. They're just trying to get people through the door. And it's like you yeah. already think about who you're trying to attract by going after. And it was so easy when there was a wizard top ten hottest artist or hottest writer list. Because uh, that was such a good thing to make fun of. Uh, <laughs> don't worry. You have the bleeding cool like, power list now. Sure, it's like who's who's writing and drawing the Star Wars comic that sells a hundred thousand copies an issue. Sure, you bring them, you bring Brian Vaughn and Fiona Staples, you bring whoever. Like they're going to bring people to your show. You're already thinking about people being brought to your show that you know be- because they're popular, right? But if you start to think like, well, what if like what if I started bringing more creators? Like they think about it in really mercenary ways, and I think that you know if that's the way they got to do it. That's the way they got to do it, but. You could be mercenary in different ways. You could be like, man, who is exciting to the queer community right now that I could bring like an extra 500 people through the door that are just there to see that person? Who's, right. you know, who, who are the people that are doing, like people of color that are doing books that are going to bring that audience through my doors and pay my, my admission fee and whatever? Mm-hmm. And I think that like, yeah, it's mercenary and it's weird, but if you're going to make business owners listen, like that's a really good way to phrase that conversation. Yeah, you have yeah, to, like you have to always- have money. Hmm. I would, well, go ahead. A lot of play. I keep cutting off David. <laughs> what <are> you saying? <laughs> no, I was telling you to go ahead. Uh, no, I, I was just thinking that it's it's frustrating to me that that things can be that mercenary, and you see publishers not still not kind of jumping on it. 
right? That's the thing that doesn't get me is all the anti, like the anti-monetary decisions that, that that publishers make to like keep their conceived notions of the industry going. Yeah, uh, I saw. I saw there were protest. There were people with protest signs setting up a big protest, so they would make more action figures of the Scarlett Johansson character in uh, Avengers, uh, Black Widow. Yep. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, and um, and it was like, it just seemed really weird to me because I mean, I mean, that's cool that they feel that strongly about it, but also it's like, what's going on where you guys are begging to spend to throw money at at a place that owns these characters and is like job is to sell them to you well it's also the weird part of expecting that kind of i don't want to say fan service but like as a fan you demand these things and they have to do that for you that's called to an extent but it's also um like it gets back to the non-compliant tattoo like once you buy into something anything really like you want to be served by that thing yeah like when right. I was a, a teen and I quit Spider-Man comics, it's because I wasn't being served anymore. Right. And I don't mean that in like a uh, like derogatory sense. It's just like if I'm into this, like please, please entertain me. And by leaving out Black Widow, they're basically saying like, hey, you guys aren't big enough fans for this to work for us. Right. Yeah. I think that's definitely money on the table. Like that, that feels like that kind of situation. And it is so strange that they're like, eh, that's money we'll leave on the table. Like, yeah. oh, we're not going to engage that huge problem that everyone has with our shit. Like, it's just so weird. But it's it be. I think that becomes. I assume that that becomes almost like um, they have to concede that things are changing. Yeah. To to accept that, that and do that, and they have to like think about, you know, think about female Marvel fans or whatever. Um, I'm gonna wind us up with one last question because. Uh, folks on the Twitters we said they could ask questions and only one person had a real question and what's the best comic you've ever gotten from a quarter bin oh, I thought you were going to ask who we thought was the cutest in the oh game. I think it's David <laughs> yeah David I mean it's David I mean it depends I, on what you're I into. will accept that yeah <laughs> I feel like we're, we're like the peak of both of our uh, uh, orientations we'll, we'll go with that woohoo <laughs> that's, uh-huh. that's where you guys are just like well, we're 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 gods in our own lane. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, you guys didn't rate Brandon Robin. That's rough. But yeah. uh, I fell down a hill the other day, so I think my <laughs> status is pretty far down there. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, Wait, what, what was the question? Uh, best, best quarter bin find. Huh. I'm trying to remember the name. I was really excited years ago when I found Slash Maraud, the series in the RX quarter bin. Oh, um, do you I, guys know Slash Maraud? No, no, I've heard of was him. It, I was it Paul Galassi? I'm trying. I don't remember who. It sounds like I think it was Paul Galassi. It was. It was like a post-apocalyptic comic made in the '80s about a uh, a guy in a trench coat who was who was like Earth was being terraformed for these alien shape-changing aliens, and him and this like woman with green hair and like a tiger stripe suit where we're gonna like fight off the the last aliens and from las vegas okay it's very like b movie but but i was very excited when i found it um mine was probably uh like i said a suit of motor city and uh i think the last time i went there was a guy who was getting out of the getting out of the game and was just clearing out all of his stock so you could fill a diamond box 
for like 20 bucks. Uh, so sub quarter prices on these books. And uh, I got, I would say like 75% of a run of Sandman Mystery Theater, which had oh, wrapped wow. up at that point. Or maybe it was, nice. still, maybe it was still going, but like, like I, lo- I, I, I loved it. Like it, it, it was just perfect. Like Guy Davis' work on that. Yeah, Guy Davis basically did every issue. And when he didn't, it was just like some sort of awesome fill-in. So, Except yeah. for the uh, Chinese storyline where they made the characters extremely yellow. Uh, and that was also the gay storyline, so there was a Jeez. whole lot going on there. The coloring, <laughs> coloring on that book was the whole thing. Um, problematic. <laughs> Vertigo coloring does not have a good reputation, I hear. I'm surprised they did a different color aside from brown. You know, good on them. <laughs> it, was very, it was a very gray book. Uh, but no, seriously, like, that, that was so awesome. And just being able to, like, grab anything that looked interesting because you were trying to fill a box up was uh, probably responsible for, like, widening my tastes at that point by, like, 50-75%. And uh, Guy Davis, too, was really, really, um, when I was drawing, was, was really influential for a long time because of that. So that was, that was probably my favorite. I, uh, I have to split my answer because I have a quarter bin fine and then also a uh, crazy deep discount fine that might as well be a quarter bin. Nice. But back in my hometown, there was, uh, when, I got, when I was in college, there was this kind of crappy comic shop that had a really deep quarter bin section. And I got all these late 70s, early 80s marvels out of there, like uh, Bill Sienkiewicz Moon Knight before the style change and after uh, Kirby Black Panther. Just all this crazy stuff I'd never read as a kid. And they huh. ended up being right up my alley. Nice. And it was all, like I spent like five bucks and came home with 20 or 30 comics because, you know, they do deeper discounts. Mm-hmm. But my favorite super cheap comic shop find is uh, when I lived in Virginia, there was another shop that I would go in, but I wouldn't buy anything because I didn't have any money i was a teenager but one day i was looking at the akira hardcovers that graffiti designs put out that he had under his uh like glass display and he was mm-hmm. like hey i can't sell those pieces of crap i'll give them both to you for 15 bucks <laughs> and, <laughs> and like they're still on my shelves to this day you know they're part of why i love the color akira so much and they go for like 100 bucks on ebay or worse but like that is just my favorite like it's definitely the best bang for my buck I just so like far. that there was a point where somebody was like, these Akira books I just can't sell. Get that crap out of here. Yeah, it was like 1998. Like, it wasn't even, you know, Akira wasn't new or anything. It should have been a known property. But I guess he just couldn't find any manga fans in, you know, southern Virginia. <laughs> right. <laughs> it paid off for me. <laughs> I'll tell you that. That's great. Because Akira doesn't even, like, when, when Akira first started coming out from, from uh, Epic... I, I didn't even recognize it was manga at first. I remember grabbing it and thinking it was French. And I knew manga at that point, but it was just yeah. does, didn't look like Area 88. Oh, I was talking to uh, Zainab, who is super great, about Studio Proteus lettering on Twitter uh, oh, today or yesterday. Yeah, and that's like that's my look, like that kind of... Akira has a bit of it. Um, a lot of the early Dark Horse stuff, did. Like that's how manga looks to me. I got Which to talk to Adam Warren at the New York show for a bit about about the Studio Protus production stuff and how a lot of it was. Um, I mean, they had like Tom Rosowski doing like logo design and everything, but a lot of the retouch on things was was Tomiko Saito. Oh yeah, she was married, I think, to Torrin Smith, who started Studio Proteus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she was. And I, I thought it was really interesting that she was like a Japanese doujinshi artist who uh, had kind of come over here and and was doing retouching on the the uh the american comic like i think she she still works on like blade of the immortal 
Yeah, I would kill for like a, a Studio Proteus documentary or book or something. Yeah, it's so a, interesting like, to me. Yeah, I mean, like, poor, poor Adam Warren has to like every time I see the guy, I just like quiz him about what he was doing twenty years ago. <laughs> <laughs> um, my just because I never get to answer questions uh, was oh, yeah. uh, the second issue of I Before E by Sam Keith. Oh, I don't know oh, that I remember one. That. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah the, the second one was really hard to find. I found it in, uh, in a bargain bin. And I was very happy. Oh, I have a quick Adam Warren anecdote that I wanted to jump on you guys. Okay, yeah. Go ahead, Brandon. Cut me right. off. <laughs> <laughs> and then we'll talk about about uh, the Sam Keith I before. He was in Critters, remember? Yep. We know uh, you like furry comics. That that's a you know that's a fucking comic book history event right there. But uh, either way, just I just before I forget, um, in dirty in the dirty pair comics that Adam Warren did, they had these bag of brew like beer. That he would show whenever someone was being super like destitute, they'd be just drinking beer out of a sack. And he told me that at uh, he he'd visited Toronto and seen the like the Canadian bag of milk. I was so appalled and amazed by that that he made the bag of brew. And I, I like the Canadian influence on the on the Studio Forty S Dirty Pair. Oh man, that's fantastic. So, yeah, I like that that story. But um, so Robin, was this was this pre back Sam Keith? Uh yeah, it was all his early stuff. Fanographics did two issues. There were like sixty pages or something each of uh, just short story stuff. Fanographics guy. He was a fanographics guy. Kind of, not really. He did a lot of different stuff when he was starting. He, I think, he even had a thing in an issue of Gay Comics. He did. Uh, Yeah, but he's not gay. He just has. No, but that was actually that was a Max spinoff with like the first six issues. I actually was the first. I, there's the first gay comic, the first out gay comic that I bought because it had the Max on the cover, so I could buy it without necessarily being gay to my comic book shop uh, employee because I just collected the Max. It made sense, right, to get this Max crossover story. Uh, yeah, it was fucking tough being a gay kid in that comic book store. Uh, it was even a decent comic book store, but yeah, that was the fact that they carried gay comics in the first place with the Max uh, should have. Should have clued me in that it probably would have been okay uh, if right. I didn't try and shove it between two other issues of the Max. But uh, yeah, no, he—I mean, he did um, Epicurious Sage and all kinds of stuff back yeah, before the him. Max. Interesting. Back even before Sam. That, that was was that Piranha Press or something? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, crazy! Yeah. I remember that book, but never connected it with Sam Keith. Yeah. Yeah, I actually like it a lot more than the Max. Yeah, well, I mean, kind of pre-90s image, his storytelling must have been totally different. Yeah, I've got to do some research. Yeah, go read, I uh, did a couple Wolver- Wolverine thing that was really good. Um, yeah. I remember that. Yeah. What was the, was the gay comics thing just a Max story? Yeah, it was a story about, um, I can't remember Mr. Gon's daughter's name, the, the, the dark-haired girl. Um, and she encounters uh she helps a kid out who uh killed himself because she's sensitive to like spectral things uh because he was gay and she helps him like sort of deal with the situation that caused him to kill himself because that was what gay comics were about in the 90s yeah i was gonna ask it was like a message comic or not that's heavy it, well, I mean, dude, it was just it's just the reality of the situation. Every gay movie in the 90s is like some people are killing themselves or everyone's got AIDS. It's, it's fucking rough. Uh, <laughs> uh, sorry. 
Uh, one day, one day I'll start writing about that too. It's but yeah, it's like every piece of of gay media for a really long time was like, well, your life sucks and you almost died, but you made it, but nothing is going to be good for you. And it's like that's how the YA novel ends. It's uh, grim as hell. It is so grim. I actually, yeah, I yeah. Anyway, whatever. Maybe they're just <laughs> really the difference between <laughs> happy and gay being the same thing. It means <laughs> miserable. <laughs> Thank you, 90s. Thank you, the 90s. That's a really up note to end on. Chris is right. Yeah. No, yeah. you know what? Morgan Robin, you forgot. You, you asked us to each come to this meeting uh, having uh, read and enjoyed a comic book. Can we go on that instead so I don't feel so bad? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, what was your comic that you read and enjoyed, Robin? Uh, that I've read recently? I read Thunderpaw yesterday, and it was beautiful and fantastic. I don't know what that is. It's uh, Jen Lee. She has a book coming out from uh, No Brow called Vacancy. And okay. it's this uh, GIF-based uh, webcomic of these animals that are like teenage, like probably 13, 14-year-old, you know, anthropomorphics. Uh, beautifully drawn. They're all GIFs, so it's like these like weird crying dogs. Um, really amazing looking. Uh, Sloan oh, yeah, did that. Too. That was fantastic. Yeah, Sloan did a fill-in, Sloan Leong. That's, uh, oh, cool. We all, we all like Sloan. Uh, she oh, did. I've seen I've seen this work. Yeah, she's really good. Yeah, yeah. Vacancy, the No Brow book. Um, it's gonna be out pretty soon, I think, and it's really beautiful. So uh, yeah, I've seen that. So go ahead. There you go. Something I liked. Nice. Uh, David, did you read a, a comic you liked? Uh, this will surprise no one, but the <laughs> latest One Piece is the last one I read that I liked a whole lot. Uh, just because it's like it's nearing the end of what is it, it, the arc feels like it's two and a half years long on a weekly right. schedule, so it's kind of over long at this point. But like Oda is so good at building up to a moment that uh, this chapter, like Luffy, the main character, he's like knocked out, he's getting hurt, but he's healing, and they're like, "I need eight minutes to heal, or ten minutes, or something like that, something really weirdly specific." And uh-huh. the entire country that he's trying to rescue is counting down to him coming back. Like, there's this whole speech over the radio where someone's like, uh, you know, we don't trust pirates, but we should this time because this pirate's a good guy. And I believe in, you know, in Luffy, our hero. He's done all this incredible stuff already. And so there's like a 10 count where the entire country is like screaming for him to come back and help him out. And it's totally a foregone conclusion. You know exactly how it's going to go down. But it's like watching a wrestling match where it just gets super serious and you can't help but cheer. Like, he just nails that mood. I love that about One Piece. Just love yeah. it. I mean, there was, like, that's the book where there was a 40-page flashback to justify one punch so that you knew it was justified. Oh, that I was knew so it was good. Like, yeah, it was fantastic. Like, I love that style of storytelling. Huh. Way to, way to outdo One Punch Man. Yeah. <laughs> that was also really good this week. <laughs> What have, what have you read recently, Brandon? Uh, I read Harrow County number two today, which was really good. The Colin Bunn, Tyler Crook book. Oh yeah, Tyler's a great artist. Yeah, and Tyler's like he's lettering it and like drawing it and and painting it himself. It's Jeez. just uh, yeah, it's it's so and it's just like a nice horror comic. I read that and I read a bunch of um, totally out of order Terry Moore comics, like post Strangers in Paradise Terry Moore. Mm-hmm that were, like, really entertaining in a way that, like, it very, like, something I wouldn't have let myself enjoy as much in the 90s when they were, you know, when he was a bigger deal or when 
when Strangers in Paradise was a was a was a big deal. And you bought those at Desert Island in New York. Yeah, yeah, I, I got a big kick out of going to like the specifically like indie comic store and getting the least cool thing I could find. It was a very cool comic store and buying the least cool thing they had. <laughs> but it feels like, good to like give that up, right? Like the I don't want to let myself read this. Oh yeah, like, yeah I, re- no, I, I read so many comics that were meant for like Japanese boys in the eighties, and it just touches my heart. And it's so weird <laughs> to say, "Wow!" But they're great comics. Like Fist of the North Star is super good. Oh, that is such a good. I that I I always maintain Fist of the North Star is the best thing to ever come out of the Mad Max movies. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Chris, we'll let you end up on the with the with the last one there. Uh. I think the the comic that's sticking in my head right now is uh, the new Optic Nerve. I just read that. Um, even though it came out at TCAF, I finally got around to reading it. Um, I've been reading a lot of comics and have really complicated thoughts on them, but Optic Nerve is just such a such a pleasure. It was like basically the first really indie comic I ever sort of found with like first couple issues, and then the Sleepwalk trade was out pretty like collecting the minis as well. And so, yeah, it's very, it's always super familiar to me, regardless of where he seems to be going with his stories or his art or whatever. And uh, I really liked the new issue. It was, um, it was two main stories and then a short backup. And uh, yeah, I mean, the first one's about parents having a real issue supporting their kids who want to go in a weird career direction. Uh, and it's the second one was just about like uh, well-meaning home invasions. <laughs> Uh, it was just like, like really like, and, and the, the well-meaning home invasions, there's a couple of incidents that happen at the end and there's so many different ways of looking at them. And I've been trying to figure out what like the true, like what actually happened. And yeah, it was just really, really enjoyable. Um, yeah, it was, I was, I was really surprised cause it's like really firmly Adrian Tomine, but also really surprised me, uh, as well in terms of the protagonist. The first story was more just like straight ahead like like Adrian like it was it was you know that's that's what he does but the the last story was uh really actually it really harkened back to his very first mini comic stuff for me so I liked it a lot I think he's trying to really step out of his comfort zone like with the previous issue the one about the uh the baseball game felt very Yeah I like that one a lot Um yeah I, I don't know I don't know it's uh it's 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 weird because there's so much stuff coming out right now that it's just like, man, that was really solid, like a really good 7 out of 10. And if it came out 10 years ago, it would have been my favorite book. <laughs> like it yeah. Uh, I've been like talking about this thing, and it's like Trash Market by Tsuge that just came out is so interesting. But if you ask if it's good, it's like, well, I... no, you've had four other books that each do a thing better than Trash Market does. But it itself is so unique. I'm going to talk about it on the panel this year uh, at San Diego, by the way, because uh, it's so, so weird. Uh, anyway. I picked it up recently, and I haven't really been able to get into it. Oh, my God. It's so hard to get into. Like, I, yeah. I'm, like, 50 pages into it, and it's like, I just, like, I don't care. No, I'm no. I'm surprised. Usually the D&Q manga I can jump right into, and this one's just going to, like, mm. No, it's uh, it's great. And then when you get to the essays at the end, uh, they're really good. They're shockingly good too. But uh, yeah, this one in particular is just like, oh, he doesn't quite do photo ref quite as good as uh, Hayashi does on Red Colored Elegy. And oh, he's 
he's doing this like verite thing, but Tatsumi's stuff was like so much more like hardcore, and his stuff is like really like stopped short, and oh, and, like and you're just like you 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 can point out specific things that have come out in the last five to ten years that are like the top of the heap, and he's just like doing really interesting comics that are really good on their own merits but not quite as accomplished as all of his like contemporaries because that's where we are with reprints right now yeah. and it's so great because of that like I love it but it's but it's also like and here's like a, a laundry list of complaints I have with that book too so I wanted to do something that I just like totally loved and I think Optic Nerve is great but there's so many books that are just interesting that I that you could just dig into right now and it's so so good we're, we're really 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 lucky I was reading yeah. uh, Pablo at the same time by um, Clement I totally mispronounced his last name, Oberay. Uh And they both, like, the trash market of the story I'd read had kind of touched on the same thing, but because Pablo was so beautifully done and you're able to just jump into it so well, it's like, eh, I'm just going in this direction. Uh, yeah. Have you guys read Ama yet? The, is it Swedish or Swiss? Swiss. Yeah. Oh, Swiss. Peters. He came, uh, debuted a TCAF, just putting that out there. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> TCAF is it, the show. Like, interviewed I, I, I on really the really want to go next year. <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, it's... Oh, thank you. Um, no, I did. I read uh, the first volume, uh, and I liked it a lot. He's really... Uh, Mobius loved it, eh? Mm-hmm. Uh, it was one of the few books that Mobius, like, right before he passed away, was like, no, this guy, he's doing it. He's the shit. Uh, I can't imagine what kind of, like... I can't imagine if that's weighing on him or he's just like now now has like the complete freedom to do whatever he wants forever. Uh, <laughs> you get like that kind of like blessing, you know. I think it's a lot. Yeah, although I would point out that there's a there's a pretty mediocre uh, trans woman porn that Mobius did the forward for. So you know, he's, <laughs> <laughs> not everything. So nobody's perfect. <laughs> yeah, I, I uh, I'm uncomfortable with how hyperbolic comics internet is sometimes lately. Whether like for or against stuff, I feel like there's not a lot of like that mid-range conversation. Mm-hmm. But I honestly think we are in an incredible age of comics right now. Like between reprints and new works, it's it's crazy how much stuff I have and I want to read. Yeah, it's nice. It's uh, like the yeah, level of access is fantastic. And even if you get sick of it, you can just go back and read a bunch of '90s Terry Moore, and you're you're set, man. Yeah, exactly. like I just read four volumes of Fist of the North Star that Viz put out. Like I specifically tracked down the Viz editions instead of the Raijin ones, just because I wanted to see. On that note, I think I'm gonna let you boys go. Oh right, sure, since we're talking about manga, you gotta let us go. <laughs> week, next week we need to meet for a four-hour-long Fist of the North Star talk. Yeah, oh, I'm let's into do it. it. Oh, uh, I think I'm busy that day. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Once again, uh, David Brothers uh, working at Image Comics as well as you can. Its fourth letter still exists on the web, or did you kill the site? Uh, it's still on the internet, though. Okay. Like I just realized that I'm paying for something I'm not using, so we'll see how that goes. Uh, as well, David was very kind to hosting Studs for a whole month last year, and is welcome back anytime. Uh, Christopher Butcher from the Beguiling and TCAF, the Toronto Comic Art Festival. Um, the first calf, we should say, as there are many other calves at this point. Um, and, of course, uh, my good friend Brendan Graham, um, whose new work uh, will be coming out soon. Um, the sci-fi comics magazine anthology Island, as well uh, the collaboration with his partner, uh, Marion Churchland, Arclight, uh, the first eight house comic, which will probably be out right about when this gets posted. So thank you, gentlemen. Yeah, anytime.
Yeah, thanks, Robin. Thank <laughs> you.